Shall we begin? Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. Gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene with the tire. Winter's coming. Watch your What's his name again? Mr. Kari's I cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our Dracaris. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 1. Dragonstone. I could not be more excited for this. It's been a long wait, longer than usual. We're so happy to be back with you guys. In case you're new to the Game of Thrones review, I just want to tell you how we structure our episodes so you know what to expect. We're going to give you our overall thoughts, talk about the title meaning for the episode, discuss the opening sequence, new faces and places, and then we'll get to our crow's eye view where we'll talk about the plot. And finally, we'll give you our Raven rating and MVB, most valuable bannerman for the episode. And then we'll wrap it up with our wolf watch, sneak peek through the heart tree at what's coming next episode, and Clatcher's comments. All right, let's get this started because we have so much to talk about. We have thoughts, we have theories, reactions, So much to get through, I'm afraid we might not even get to all of it. It's going to be a long episode, but that's great to open up the season. And what's exciting, we're not just going to talk about the plot. We will go through by locations and the major events that happen there. We want to also tell you why it was important, what you need to know about the people, the places. This is especially true for episode one, because I came out of it with the gut reaction that a lot of this was set up not a lot of action. I was a little surprised with only a seven-episode season that they would start off with their same structure of having episode one be set up. But thinking back on it later, even though they were quiet moments, they were really intense and so much was going on there. It was a great reintroduction to this world. It really built the anticipation and they did some deep character work as well. Well, in our prepper podcast, we did say episode one will probably be set up. They have to set up the chess pieces for us. And then the rest of the season, they will destroy these chess pieces for us. Absolutely. But I think that left a lot of people probably saying, where was the excitement? It was there simmering under the surface. Don't worry. I don't know if they said, where's the excitement? I was excited from right when they did the recap of all of the seasons, the music, the intensity, the way they cut the scenes, the way they were able to engulf six seasons of mayhem into what, like a two minute clip and really make it make sense. I was hyped. 100% Jason, before they even got there, they were running the HBO countdown timer to when the episode would drop. I was freaking out. I was running around the room screaming. HBO was definitely flexing their muscles. And as soon as their marathon finished, which was all of last season's episodes, you saw the countdown. I think it said like five minutes and 59 seconds, 58 And then they go right to a commercial for all of their nominations for this year. And they went show by show, just flexing their muscles. And then right when that was done, right back to the countdown. And then another commercial, Ballers is coming back. GOT woven throughout all of that, of course. And then they hit you with that soundtrack and with the recap of everything you guys love. Let me give you the stats on this episode. It was directed by Jeremy Padesua. One of our veterans, he's going to be doing this one and the final episode seven, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. 
Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 93% and IMDb an 8.9. I want to begin with talking about our title meaning, Dragonstone. It was so critical with all the stuff that was happening with Danny, even though we really didn't see it until the very end of the episode. Now, if you're not familiar, Dragonstone the Place is the ancestral homeland of House Targaryen. It was settled centuries ago as the westernmost outpost of the Valyrian Freehold. Due to its isolation, when the doom of Valyria destroyed their vast empire in a single day, the remaining Targaryens survived on Dragonstone with the only dragons left. We're going to get more into the doom of Valyria later and how that ties into a pet theory of mine that's begun cooking. It's not really there yet, but I want to talk it out. But Dragonstone is one of the strongest fortresses in all of Westeros because it was built by the ancient Valyrians themselves using advanced construction techniques which were lost after their empire collapsed. That also includes, by the way, the art of making Valyrian steel that became so desired, a topic we've talked about a lot here at CKC. You know those structures you see throughout the island of Dragonstone with the strange black stones, including the throne? They actually made those by having their dragons melt down the stone with their flames and then turning this liquid stone into crazy-looking shapes. Oh, cool. That's why you don't see anything else like that in Westeros. But that doesn't constitute Dragonstone. No, which makes you wonder, there's got to be a special art that goes into it. Now, now dragon glass is actually obsidian that comes from volcanic rock. Dragon steel is forged not only with the fire, but through the magic of spells. So that's Valyrian steel to you, different spells that they use. This was part of the Valyrian's power, not only their dragons, but the fire magic that they used. Even after the doom of Valyria, when the Targaryens invaded Westeros and remained here, Dragonstone stayed their private domain, and traditionally the heir to the Iron Throne would rule the island directly as Prince of Dragonstone. And when Stannis held it, it wasn't worth much in and of itself, because it's a comparatively small island, but it has an excellent strategic location, and this is where I think it could come in real handy. We're seeing that Cersei's big weapon here looks like it's going to be her alliance with Euron Greyjoy, right? We'll get more into that later. But it seems like she thinks she's going to be able to fight Danny's fleet with Euron's armada. However, Danny's sitting at Dragonstone, which controls the mouth of the Blackwater Bay that leads right up into King's Landing. Thus, she could threaten all sea travel, everything going in and out of there. Plus, it's just a strong symbolic move for her. She's back in her home turf. All right, let's talk about the map. We love to look at this opening sequence, and it's always been important. The production department that creates the map actually follows a strict set of formal rules that they have to play by. We're always wondering, how do these locations make it in when they cut ones out? They're required to show four specific locations in every episode, even if nothing takes place there. King's Landing, Winterfell, The Wall, and wherever Danny is. Another rule was that there was a time limit. So the map has never actually shown more than six locations in a given episode. It would take too long for the camera to zoom around. In this opening, we got King's Landing, Dragonstone, the Twins, Winterfell, the Wall, and Old Town, which was a new addition for us. It was nice to see Winterfell have the sigil that belongs there finally back. I believe we had it a few episodes at the end of last season. but after the Battle of the Bastards. But it was really nice to see it still there and going strong. And one thing I noticed is they emphasized that opening astrolabe. This time as it's going through the map, you see it whiz by a few times. And then you whiz by it as if it was a sun 
on top of all the map. Now, that's the sound you hear too, right? The sort of clicking that happens location to location. And we know that Game of Thrones doesn't do anything for no reason. So there's got to be a reason they're now introducing the astrolabe more in detail than in previous versions. Absolutely. And we saw that mimicked in the Citadel in Old Town. During Sam's scene, when they zoomed in on the library, the first shot was of the astrolabe that's in the library. It appears as though its purpose there is to reflect light into all the different bookshelf areas because they didn't have electricity at the time. You couldn't keep burning candles by all of these old ancient books. Right. So it has different pieces of glass that will light all the areas reflect into the library. But does it serve a bigger purpose? That's the real question, right? So one of our clatchers, Connie, wrote in. She gave us a link to an article where they talk about a theory. And she wants to know if we subscribe to this, which is that the whole show is actually Sam pouring over maps telling a story. That would be cool. So do we think by the end we're going to kind of go back to Sam writing down this history? And he's a maester and he's making the next book. That would be amazing. I love that. I mean, it doesn't really feel very George, but then again, I don't know. It's kind of cool. It'll feel like George if he finishes the book and as he makes the final period, he gets killed. Oh, Then it'll feel like George, right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, she also has some thoughts, Connie, that is, about what the astrolabe could be for. She wants to know if we think it's possible they use it to forge swords. And she says this because of that sound I talked about in the opening credits that sounds like a chink with this spinning ring. She thinks it's the sound of a sword being sharpened. Well, perhaps, but also, you know, sword being sharpened is metal on stone. And if this thing is moving, it's metal on metal. Could be very similar. I believe we had a segment last year on CKC Podcast where we had our ideas. Yeah, you said it could be sort of like a machine that creates a super powerful light. We were trying to think of all the different fire theories, ways that we could fight the walkers. Wildfire could be an alternative. And you said, could this create some type of super focused light beam? Right. And I was really on to it being a machine, something that produces. We know that the maesters protect a lot of hidden knowledge and secrets. Could part of that be a sort of magic? But now I'm thinking the magic is in the knowledge itself. And if they're there to illuminate the bookshelf areas during a certain configuration, time of day, when light movements change, do they light up on pivotal books? So specific books that are spread out within the Citadel and they're all lit up at this one time. And those are the key books that you need to pull together to devise the answer. To get the knowledge. God, that sounds so cool. But the only problem with that is all the really important books are in that room that's outside of the main area. The restricted section, but how do we know there's only one? Okay. No, I love that idea. I think it's actually fun. And maybe that's the last book that's in there. You know, you have to collect all the others and then there's this final one in the restricted section. Yeah. But if so, we've kind of fast forward because Sam's already broken in there and stolen a book. Now, we don't know that's the ultimate book. Well, his focus is very narrow right now. As a human, you go off of the information you know, and then you try to learn off of that. So what he knows is he needs to find a way to kill the walkers. But that might just be one part of the story. There might be many other parts that you piece together. I think that's absolutely true, and we'll discuss this more when we get to Old Town. But I think this maester knows something about it, and he's hiding it from Sam. 
But just as George R. R. Martin never does anything with no reason, the double Ds and G-O-T don't either. And as much as they say the map, oh, it's just about time and, you know, there's certain things. Now we see these set rules that the opening sequence has. I think it's all plotted out very carefully. And this central object must be important later on. We have so much to go through. I don't want to stay on this map, but I could for hours because (laughs) it is so important. It's the precursor to the entire episode. They're telling you what parts of the chessboard are important in this particular episode. And I think if you extrapolate from that, it'll probably tell you even more. So Jason, before we get into the plot, one of the segments we do is new faces and places. What did you see this episode that perhaps you don't recognize who that person is? What does this location mean? We went over the places, primarily being Dragonstone, and we got some new faces as well. We met Archmaester Ebros, the one that Sam is talking to when they're doing that autopsy, I guess. Yes, and we had one of our nerdy, excitable moments because we realized real quick, even before we saw the face, just from the voice, that it was Jim Broadbent from Harry Potter. Yes. Who plays Professor Horace Slughorn. Don't think I don't know why you're here, Albus. The answer's still no. Absolutely and unequivocally no. Yes, and I loved him in that role. Pretty much everything else he's been into. He was the father in Bridget Jones' diary. So good there. Now, I don't know. I think there was also an Ebros in the book. I thought at first this was going to be Archmaester Marwin that they talked about, but I think that's going to be another character. And I'm wondering how pivotal he will be in the rest of this season, because I don't see him helping at all. He pretty much shut Sam down. He did. He was also, though, one of the very few, according to Sam, that does believe in the others, their existence. And as I said, I think he has more information about the purpose of them and Sam's just not worthy of receiving that yet as a maester in training. So maybe this comes back around later for him to give us some knowledge. We also met a group of Lannister soldiers. We don't get the names on them, but one of them, surprise, surprise, was played by Ed Sheeran. So the rumors were correct. I thought for sure no way that was going to be true. Does this mean we're going to see Conor McGregor in the future also? No, I found out that he was offered a role, but he declined. Okay. Well, some people didn't like this because they said it pulled them out of it. I am an absolute huge Ed Sheeran fan. As soon as I heard the singing, I was like, oh my God, it's true. And I thought he was unobtrusive enough that it didn't take me out of the story. Well, for sure. He wasn't... First, you heard his voice. And I didn't realize it was his voice. And I was like, wow, they really got a good singer for this. (laughs) But what was funny was, we probably should talk about this when we get to that part, but whatever. When he started singing, you started singing the words... And I was like, how the fuck do you know all of these words? (laughs) And then we saw it was Ed Sheeran. And then when she's hanging out with him, he only says a few things because he's not an actor. And I'm sure if they gave him too much dialogue, that would pull you out. I think it was just enough. I thought he was great. And I heard a rumor that this was all done as a surprise to Maisie Williams because she's a big fan of his music. Oh, that's awesome. And finally, we met Ned Umber and Alice Karstark, the new heirs in the North that John decided to give them their house seats and castles back. Now, Alice, the new heir to House Karstark, had a larger subplot in the books that they've cut down. I think they're going to skip all of that, and this was the alternative introduction. Are you seeing a trend that more and more it's the younger and younger ones that are in charge because all of the adults are dying? Well, we lost so many in the War of the Five Kings, 
needlessly that happened right before all of this. And I was just going to say, at the end of last season, when we lost Mace Tyrell in the explosion of wildfire at the Great Sept, his death meant that all the official heads of the Westerosi Great Houses that were there from the beginning of the story are now dead. The Aarons, the Starks, the Baratheons, who actually may be extinct now, the Targaryens, the Tullys, the Lannisters, the Martells, the Tyrells, and the Greyjoys. All of their heads of houses are gone. And so, as you said, you're going to see younger and younger heirs moving up now to take their place. And, and you could even say the phrase now that Walder Frey is dead. Well, all of his sons are dead too, though. I'm yeah, pri- prior to this episode, though. Gone. Yeah, <laughs> true. Is you lead me to our deaths for this episode, which I believe were just those Frey men, though it was a hell of a lot of them. And as far as characters that we did not see, Melisandre, Theon and Yara, Alaria and the Sand Snakes, Lady Olena and Bronn. So where do you think Melisandre's at? Banished from the north, where does she go? She may be seeking out Danny. Yeah, her and everyone else, right? Who's not joining Team yeah. Danny? So let's get into it and talk about the cold open. At the Twins, we see Walder Frey has assembled his men for a second feast to reveal his plans now that winter has come. But as he's serving Arbor Gold and his men are toasting, he does not drink. And he says their mistake was not slaughtering all the Starks. Leave one wolf alive and the sheep are never safe. The men begin to die from their poisoned wine as Walder removes his face to show that he is Arya Stark, there to get her revenge. She tells the serving girl, when, when people, people ask you, you what happened, happened here, here... Tell them the North remembers. Tell them winter came for House Frey. Did you see this coming? I did. Well, right when they start the scene and you're behind Walder Frey's arm and they start zooming in, you said, is this a flashback? But then as the scene started to unfold, I quickly said, that's Arya. As you were saying it, though, I thought you were talking about the girl he has next to him because then he stops her from drinking. So I thought for sure that's because she's going to reveal herself. It really took me up until the end of that speech to put it together. It was Walder. Oh, I knew for a fact once he said that she couldn't drink and we saw that he didn't drink it, that for sure it was poisonous and she didn't want to kill her. I'm smarter than you. It's fine. <laughs> we also found out the Frey house words because we've never gotten them in the books. They said them here. At least we think it's them. We stand together. Right away, so many lines that I loved. I have a bit of a fun fact about this scene. Apparently, the cold open was originally supposed to be the scene of the White Walkers that we're going to talk about in a minute, moving south. But the Double Ds were so impressed with David Bradley's performance that they moved the order of it to make this the cold open. I think it was perfect. His performance was spot on. Yes, but I did feel it, that that scene with the walkers was a little bit awkwardly kind of shoved in there. And considering they're going to be such a focus this season, I kind of wish they had started the episode. I disagree, because this is how they start strong with a little reveal for you just to get you even more hyped, and a death, many deaths right there. Revenge for Red Wedding. And David Bradley, the way he acted that, he had to act himself as Arya trying to act as himself. I thought it was great. And he is great. The loss of that actor on this show is definitely going to be felt, so they wanted one more scene with him in there. Do you think this spells trouble for Arya? How so? Later on, when we get to the King's Landing scene, Jamie is telling Cersei he wonders who killed all the Freymen 
because it's definitely no friend of theirs. And I'm wondering if the team of Lannister soldiers were about to meet through Arya, they say they're sent to keep the peace because of what happened with the phrase, but all the phrase are gone. So what else would they be doing there except to look for whoever the culprit is? Uh, I, don't, I don't agree with that because one, once we know their storylines, they're not tried and true soldiers. They seem pretty green to me. And how would they know who to look for? And actually, I don't even think Jamie knows that it was someone disguised as someone that killed somebody, you know? No, he just knows it's an enemy of theirs. You're right. She has the perfect cover with being able to disguise herself. But she's also getting a little ballsy, as we're going to see in this next scene. As she later rides through the Riverland woods, she hears Ed Sheeran... (laughs) singing Hands of Gold, and stumbles upon a group of these Lannister soldiers who ask them to join them in their dinner. She tells them she's headed to King's Landing and learns the Sept of Baelor was destroyed. She also tells them she's going to kill the Queen, but they assume she's kidding and laughs it off. What if they hadn't laughed? What was her play there? I really don't know. I think it was awesome the way it happened. I think she knew they wouldn't believe her. It's just one little girl. Okay, because the sinister part of me wondered if she was ready to kill all those men because they're Lannister soldiers. She may have been because she knew where all their swords were and that was behind them. She was probably at the ready. She has the balls. We know that. I don't think we should look too deeply into her saying that. I think it was clever writing to make us go, (gasps) Yeah, but it changes how I feel about her and her trajectory. We wondered this all last season, how far down this path... Has she really gone to becoming a faceless man and a ruthless assassin? Did she jump off that horse because she realized when she saw their cloaks, much as we did, that they were Lannister soldiers and she should take them out? Or does she still have a little bit of humanity left and wanted to join a group for a meal and realized they were just boys going through the same shit, essentially, that she did? That makes a world of difference. I think the fact that she left the many-faced god, that she still has humanity. Hmm, that's a good point. I had thought it was because they were making her follow the rules and she wanted to be a a sort of outlaw assassin. But you could be right. Well, she was ready to start taking care of her list, for sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about Arya as far as mental-wise. There's other people mentally I'm worried about. I'm worried that she might get caught, maybe too confident, and that she's alone. But I'm not worried that like she lost her shit. Also, I don't think she's going to go to King's Landing. I think this is her farthest south that she's going to go. Speaking to these soldiers and how they spoke about family. I hope my child is a female so that she can stay with the family and help that family to grow. Because boys go out and fight other people's wars. And the camaraderie she's going to get that night... Maybe I'm just hopeful. I think she's going to realize she needs to go back up north to see her family. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but in looking through the heart tree, meaning next episode, the previews, we do see the wolf. And I think, I feel like we do see her wolf. I think it's her wolf. And I feel like we did. It was very quick. I feel like we saw her and there was snow around. You're right that we did seem to see her with snow. However, if she is meeting back up with her wolf, and I think that could be true, the last we saw of Nymeria or heard of her, she was in the Riverlands, which would be about where she is now. And as much as I would love to believe what you're saying is true, we had these predictions about Arya going into this season. And I said, 
Unfortunately, I think she's going further and further off onto her own, becoming a loner. And her main goal now is her kill list. She did it successfully with Walder Frey and all of his sons, which just gave her confidence to keep going. She said she's on to Cersei next, and I believe her. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not too sure how much I believe in myself when I say it. Maybe it's just wishful thinking. This isn't one of the theories where I'm really confident about. Well, and one of our other Clatchers, Michael, wrote in with a theory about Arya, saying there have been several occasions where she was almost reunited with her family, in the Riverlands, the Vale, etc. Each time she got so close, only to see it go horribly wrong. He thinks she believes until all of her enemies are gone, she will never be able to be with the ones she loves. This alone gives her the motivation to keep going to King's Landing and dethrone Cersei first. Going further than that, he says regarding Cersei, there's no doubt she's vastly outmatched. She will probably align with Euron Greyjoy, but even that won't be enough to overcome Danny and Jon. She needs something else. Leverage. Now, Arya got some cool new tricks as a faceless woman. However, she has been known to make mistakes. She's badass, yes, but also still a child in some ways. I think an attempt to kill Cersei will end up going horribly wrong, leading her to be captured by the Mad Queen. Leverage. Arya will be used by Cersei against Jon to create hesitation or mistake, similar to what Ramsay did with Rickon. And this may be eventually how Arya dies. Oh, I'd be very disappointed if, after last season, with all her training and the faceless god, that she just gets caught. I hate to think about that as well, but the more he went on in his description, the more believable it sounded. Cersei has always been about leverage. She tried to get Sansa and Arya from day one to get the Starks to comply with her, which was working. They made a lot of mistakes. Catelyn ended up setting Jaime free in an attempt to get her daughters back. And after all, we know Arya is Jon's emotional weakness. And now that him and Sansa are together, if they get this news from Cersei trying to use that because she said, come pledge me allegiance or else, now she has Arya, this could also cause the rift we've been wondering, are Jon and Sansa going to keep coming head to head until something really major pits them against each other? If they have differing viewpoints on how they should approach that, that could cause a lot of problems. So their second raven from King's Landing would be I have Arya? Yeah. Oh, boy. Surrender uh, and, and, and proclaim me queen or else she dies. So maybe what we saw was her warging into her wolf? I think on the way south, she might still encounter Nymeria on her way to King's Landing. But it was surrounded by snow. Yeah, well, we know winter is moving south. Maybe it starts snowing in the Riverlands. Or, yeah, she could be warging into her. Anyhow, what do you Clatchers think is next for Arya? And speaking of snow, the next scene we're going to talk about is the first official one of the episode after the cold open. And speaking, of course, about what's going on north of the wall, where we see a cloud come rolling in on the plains, snowy background behind them. We realize right away it's the Walker army. Not only are they many and fearsome, we now also know they can resurrect giants. Yeah, we saw three giants there. This is insane. They have potentially a snow bear, reincarnated horses. It seems they can bring back any former living thing, not just people. And by the way, there were stories in the books that they rode gigantic ice spiders. Whoa. I wonder if we'll ever get that on TV. This was an epic scene. We saw him literally bringing winter with him so he can control the weather or at least the surrounding weather. Um, I don't know if it's him bringing winter in its entirety there or 
winter is coming and he can utilize that power to create his own clouds that will hide them. Oh, I think you're right, and that answers the question. They do bring the winter and the night. Beautifully shot. You can see their glowing blue eyes in that cloud. And as they get closer, I was just thinking, they went six years with just giving us little bits of the walkers, just little tiny scenes except for that one fight last season. And what's awesome is you can see that we're coming to the culmination of Game of Thrones because the second scene in episode one is an epic scene of them marching towards us. I still want more of them. It was still such a short scene and they're so scary. Every time they're on screen, it makes me think about the whole story. I mean, we started this all opening up Game of Thrones with them north of the wall, right? This threat. They're looming large all of these seasons, and yet how much do we really know about them? Not much. We talked last season about the fact that we hoped we would get more information from their side. What is their motivation? They can't just be mindless bad guys. That's not the way George R. R. Martin writes. There has to be some type of motivation. And I think that figuring that out is really the key to defeating them. I don't think it's enough to just realize coincidentally, oh, look, Dragonglass kills them. Valyrian Steel kills them. What do they want? How do we get rid of them for good? And that's why I thought Bran was going to be one of the pivotal points to taking them down because he would get knowledge from the Three-Eyed Raven of what the children knew, who of course created these beings. Now he might still get that. Unfortunately, the Raven died before he could tell him a lot of this stuff. But it's led me to this kind of half-baked theory, if you will let me for a second. I was wondering if... Perhaps the others were created because of the threat dragons posed to the known world. Now, we know the children's reasoning behind this was to fight man, to fight humans. But maybe there was a deeper purpose that even they weren't aware of. Because at the time, the Valyrians had been causing a lot of death and destruction through their conquests. With their dragons, fire and magic, you had the Doom of Valyria, which was a cataclysmic event. Maybe it was random. Maybe it was meant to take them down. Perhaps the reason the others are back are because dragons are back in the world again. We know their birth caused a resurgence in magic, so maybe it awakened the others too, and they're not going to stop until they defeat them. And the others that, being the White Walkers? Yeah. I'm sorry, that's a book term. Yeah, the White Walkers. And does that make Danny the bad guy? And we've wondered at that before, but kind of because she's a conqueror. Now it would be because she has dragons and potentially fire magic by the time she gets here. And that's dangerous. So you're saying Danny is the bad guy in all this? Unwittingly, yes. Because dragons. Because dragons could be bad for the world. We have seen what they did because she couldn't really figure out how to control them. The bigger they get, the more they're going to need to feed and roast on animals and children and burn crops and fields and they awaken magic in the world as well. So this Lord of Light, the fire magic, has become stronger since they were born. And that too does dangerous things. Perhaps this is a force that when it gets too powerful, creates an imbalance in the world and could cause total destruction in the form of fire if not combated by the power of ice. So you're saying the White Walkers are good guys. Wouldn't this be so like George if everything you thought was completely flipped on its head? The character you've been rooting for this whole time is unknowingly the bad guy. The one you thought is so terrible because you actually knew nothing about them. 
we're really created just to stop this other power. That definitely would be a move by George R. R. Martin. It would take <sighs> all the tropes and just throw them out the well, window, there right? You go heartbreak. So you and I and many people root for Jon Snow, Jon being half Targaryen and half Stark, half ice, half fire. Yes. Danny being all fire. And these White Walkers who we hate so much, who I guess we can never say they're good guys because they're killing regular people to get to the dragons, if what you're saying is true. But I guess they're doing it for the betterment of the world. But are they? Because they're not killing anybody until you come trying to fight them. And then they have to take you down, but they reanimate you. And they're also creating their own species with these children that we don't really know what that's about. Or the babies. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we just don't understand what's happening there. It's a really off-the-wall theory, and I haven't even thought it all the way through. The one thing I can say is as we lose more and more characters to this war, as we inevitably will, the only way they're coming back is through the resurrection of this Night King. Maybe as time goes on, we'll want that to happen. I don't know. Maybe we'll just get totally flipped on our heads and and we didn't see any of this coming. But it could also explain why the Night King is looking at John so strangely because he is the combination of ice and fire. So what does that mean? Hmm. I like your theory because it's it is out there and no one else has spoken about this. One thing is you just ordered our CKC Targaryen shirt (laughs) and I ordered the Stark shirt. So you're saying that you're the bad guy. Yes, but I was also, I was always such a Stark supporter. I was kind of pushed into ordering this fire <laughs> side. I really am a Jon Snow ice supporter at heart. And I, I always had these misgivings about Danny. As much as I felt for her plight and what she's gone through, the Targaryens, the Valyrians had a long, long bloody history. And a lot of them were crazy. They had slaves. They ruled by force. Robert and Ned saw the danger of their rule. And that's why they took them down and had Robert's rebellion to begin with. There's always been a little bit of fear of what is Danny capable of and how will she rule when she comes here? I won't get too far into the history because it's really lengthy and even I don't know that much about it. But basically, the Valyrians were these, this ancient race that came up in Valyria in Essos and started taking over surrounding areas, surrounding cities until by force and fire and with dragons, they had conquered most of Essos. Now, for listeners who don't remember, Essos is in the east. It's not part of the Seven Kingdoms. No, you have two big continents, Westeros, where we've been spending a lot of our time in the Seven Kingdoms, and then Essos, where we saw Danny travel to from the Dothraki all the way down to where she was in Marine. And their original home is where we saw Tyrion and Drora rowing. And if you remember those creatures that had scale, that was their original home. That's how Jorah got his grayscale. Because since the Doom of Valyria long, long ago, it's been abandoned. And so these stone men now that get kicked out have all sort of congregated there. But many thousands of years ago, Valyria came up to be one of the strongest empires in the world. And they were setting their sights on the West to come to Westeros and conquer that as well until the doom occurred, which was this cataclysmic event. The 14 great flames erupted, seems like multiple volcanoes, if you look at scientific fact, but nobody really knows, and set everything ablaze killed almost all of them. There were some left that had gone to Dragonstone. That's where the Targaryens went. 
And they survived with a few of their dragons and eventually went on to conquer and rule the Seven Kingdoms. So in the past, they were bad guys. But as we have said, and I know I'm going on a tangent and I apologize, you're a therapist. You've said nature versus nurture before. Her nurture was completely different. It was struggle, trials and tribulations. She had to fight hard to get to this point. I don't see Danny being that black-hearted. No, I don't think it's going to be intentional on her part. I think, yes, part of it is in her nature. They always said when a Targaryen was born, the gods flip a coin on if they're going to be mad or good. Her father was mad. Rhaegar, her older brother that we talk about a lot, was a good man. I'm talking more about what's in their bloodlines. So there was also a lot of talk about how they came to power. There were stories that they themselves had descended from the dragons. That's why they're always saying they're the blood of the dragon. The real descendants are blood of the dragon. This is why they have power over them. They also had mages and had a certain amount of power over the flames. This is how they were able to forge Valyrian steel. And this is how they were able to control the 14 flames of Valyria. But always, only just barely, it was only a matter of time before they could no longer hold that power in check anymore. And eventually that happened one day for whatever reason, and it destroyed them and a lot else. So does that still run through her? Is she inherently dangerous? Are her dragons inherently dangerous? And are they waking a magic in the world that's inherently dangerous? Well, I like your theory. Let's see if it's right. (laughs) I'm not saying it's a great one. It just feels a little bit fitting if we could make enough things come together with it. Something to keep a lookout for. Well, I like where it came from because we're constantly trying to find what is the end game for the walkers. What's their motivation here? Hmm. It can't just be like Walking Dead where they just want brains. Definitely not. They're on a mission. And if their nemesis is fire, this makes total sense. Now that also leads us to which side does John wind up on and which power does he fight for? So speaking of John, let's go to Winterfell. There he gives orders to his bannermen. He says he wants every maester to scour every record to find accounts of dragonglass. Discover it, mine it, and make weapons of it. Every boy will work to mine it. He also tells them everyone fit must fight in this war, including girls and women. And Lady Lyanna stands up to support him, saying they will train everyone on Bear Island. I love her, by the way. He also says they need to shore up their defenses. The wall hasn't been properly manned in centuries, so he wants the wildlings to man the castle. Tormund says his men will go to Eastwatch, closest to where the walkers were last seen. Oh boy, Jason, do you think that spells an end for Tormund? Well, we know from the Hound's vision that that's exactly where the walkers are going. So it's the end of them as animated humans. And we never even got to see this blossoming love affair between (laughs) him and Brienne. And he's one of my favorite characters. I love how this season already they're starting to spell it out for us. Here's the Dragonstone. We need this Dragonstone. And we have known this because we've been knees deep into this show. But uh, the casual watcher probably didn't know much about Dragonstone yet. They knew that there were some special swords out there, but they didn't know about this. Right away, they're giving you those chips. And then later on, when Sam finds the book and reads about where the Dragonstone is, you're like, okay, so that's their next goal is to get the Dragonstone. Which Stannis told Sam, was John not there when he said that? No, John knows, right? I don't recall. I mean, this feels like a new discovery, but maybe they're just putting it back into your heads again. And I do love that he's making it a priority. You know, A number one, we said tip every spear with that damn stuff. Get as much as you can. So he's doing it. Maybe he was told that there might be, 
But now Sam knows for a fact where they are and there is. Yeah. This scene was great. We had a, another key moment, another key speech. Jon Snow kicking ass. Definitely a great leader. It doesn't help to have Sansa talking back to him in front of everyone. It'd be nice if she spoke to him behind closed doors. Yeah. So the next move was that Jon decreed the last hearth and carhold should go to their descendants. She protested that their families were treasonous and the castle should be given to more faithful men. They argued back and forth for a minute, as you said, and John finally decreed he wouldn't take it away from the children for the sins of their parents. Arguing in front of the men is wrong, but put that aside. Who do you agree with on this matter? I agree with John. He doesn't gain anything from just pillaging the leftovers. He doesn't gain any respect from there. He doesn't gain any bannermen from there. This way, he still has what's left over there to fight for him. He gets Alice Karstark and Ned Umber to declare their banner for him. And now he has whatever's left over there. I know it's not the best, but he already said young men and women to be part of the fight, which is great. But the whole time they were saying this, and even when Leanna was being, again, a badass, (laughs) if you remember from last year, love when she talks. She's becoming one of my favorite characters. She's awesome. I had this feeling in my stomach like they're saying we need more and more people to fight and then all i'm thinking is that's going to turn into more and more walkers yeah it's a double-edged sword the more and more you have to fight the more and more you have to die the more and more you have to fight against you have to make sure your next stand against them is fully prepared with enough weapons to actually make a difference because yeah if you keep going up against them in these mini battles and losing people all it does is strengthen them so they should only be ready to hit if they possibly can when they know they have enough. If they were to go at them now, they got nothing. But like he said, yeah, shore up the castles, try to make sure the defenses are a little stronger, get all of these weapons ready with the dragon glass. But like we kept saying, can they sail around the wall? Are they going to be able to get through the wall if there's no magic? If one of those things happens, they're really going to be in trouble. I don't think they're going around. They don't have boats What we still said, even though they didn't visually show it, Bran going through the wall, which we will get to, weakened the magic spell that protected it. Coming back to John, I totally agree with what you were saying. Yes, their parents, the Umbers and the Karstarks, made a mistake, but their children did not, right? And they were two of the strongest supporters of the Starks for many, many years. Why lose all of that along lineage of faithfulness because Sansa says they're treasonous, but for many, many years they weren't. These people made a mistake in the heat of battle. And this was the tragic error that Rob made. Yeah, He thought he had to be strong. He had his mother in his ear, who Sansa is sounding very like in this council where she's going at John. All I was thinking was Catelyn going at Rob saying, you can't show weakness, you have to do this. And so he executed those men against maybe what he felt in his heart and the rest of his army never felt the same towards him. Mm. John's going through the same thing, and he says, no, I hear what you're saying, that he pauses for a minute, like what Sansa's saying is making sense, but I can't lose any more people. This war is too important. Just swear your allegiance to me, and let's keep fighting together. Yesterday's wars don't matter anymore. The North needs to band together. All the living North. Will you stand beside me, Ned and Alice, now and always? Now and always. And after that, privately, (laughs) 
He then comes to Sansa and says she undermined him and they got to be on the same team here. I love her. Uh, you know, she says how good he's doing. He's a great general, but... And then he says, Father always said everything before the word but is horseshit. <laughs> yeah, and she tells him he needs to be smarter than their father or Rob, that they made stupid mistakes and that's what got them killed. But that's exactly what he was trying to do there. And I think there was a key fear that's driving her kind of shoved into that statement. She said, and neither one could protect me. Hmm. And that's really what it's all about, right? That she keeps losing these people. They keep leaving her stranded with the likes of Joffrey and Cersei and Littlefinger and married to Tyrion. I mean, she has been through so much and she thinks he's not going to be able to protect her too, but I think a small part of her hopes that he might. He might live and she might still get to have that. But she needs him to listen to her. Like the way he didn't listen to her in the Battle of the Bastards and she had to go off and call for Littlefinger's men on her own. What if she hadn't done that? Well, that's true. I mean, we know that John doesn't know everything. We know that his skills aren't in war as far as large bodies of people and how to strategize with these big moving pieces. That's not his talent. Jamie's talent is that. But Jamie's talent isn't actually being a leader. If we can combine them together, if we can get them working together, we'd be fine. Well, even if it was, though, remember what they said about Rob. He was a great commander, and he was winning all of his battles but losing the war. Y you need the combination of the two. So as much as I think John made the right decision and Sansa frustrates me at times, I agree they have to work together. And I think this was the start of it. I think they will as long as... Little finger. Little finger doesn't get in the middle. Well, you saw the look on his face when they started to bicker. He was loving with everybody. it. Oh, yeah. Grinning. He was like, ooh, here's the weakness. And we even see him try. Yeah. Before they can finish their conversation, Maester Woken brings the raven from King's Landing, announcing Cersei's queendom. Come to King's Landing, bend, bend the, knee, the knee, or suffer the fate of all traitors. And Sansa encourages him, listen, don't underestimate her. I know the walkers are your concern right now, but there's no wall between you and Cersei, and she's not going to give up. There's thousands of miles between us. That was horrible. But he hasn't seen her. He hasn't seen what her deal is. And she hasn't seen the White Walkers Agreed. and what their deal is. Look, I think it's the answer is a little bit of both. And I don't know how you would deal with that. Maybe write back to her like, listen, bitch, here's a picture of a White Walker. This is what happened. Here's a Polaroid. Um, you need to this is some get truth your shit together. for you. Winter is here. But she, I mean, they know winter is here. They don't know what that means. Yeah. They're not gonna till it's at their doorstep. I've been saying that from day one. Which is gonna kill me, because we do know. Oh, there's so much to talk about here. I mean, a few things. In the storytelling in this episode, we see mirroring of John and Sansa and Cersei and Jamie. The same thing is happening. Brothers and sisters and also lovers. Uh, <laughs> they're starting to get a rift between each other. Yeah. And with both of them, we saw, even though they butt heads, there was moments with both of them where they were sincere with each other and we saw the love. And they were both saying some smart things. Of course. John, when he said, you think I'm being like Joffrey? And she's like, no, I think you're, what did she say? I think you're a great leader, blah, 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 blah. And then with Jamie, I think it was less sincere than that. And we'll get into that. But basically, he's like, what about, we haven't even talked about your sons. Yeah. They're all dead. Oh, I digress. But 
No, this is this important because more, then yeah. jo- John says, you know, it sounds almost like you admire Cersei. And Sansa says, I learned a great deal from her. So, yes, Sansa learned the strategizing, the game playing. She's been around the likes of her and Littlefinger. She knows that aspect of it. And that is still going to be important. Like she says, until the walkers are on Cersei's door, she's not going to listen to that and she's going to keep coming at him. She's not just going to go away because John knows it's a noble, important pursuit to fight the walkers. Um, but he's saying, listen, when they show up tomorrow, the next day, whenever it is, we're all going to be dead and that's not going to matter. So yeah, they just got to get on the same team. And I don't know if that's going to happen because even though what Littlefinger tried today didn't work, we know that he is relentless and he's going to find the bruise and the fruit and he's going to keep pushing at that. Littlefinger is one of the most dangerous men in Westeros. Did warn you not to trust me. I'd risk everything to get what I want. And we see in the clip for next episode, John's throwing him up against the wall. So he's doing something to piss people off. Yeah. Well, he comes in here, tries to get to Sansa again. She blows him off. Brienne comes up and that drives him away. Thank goodness. And Brienne says he wants something. And Sansa's like, yeah, I know what it is. But does she know how to deal with it is the question. Before we move on, I love the way she's speaking to Littlefinger. And he's like, what do you desire? Trying to get at, you know, you find what that is and then you try to manipulate the situation to say you're getting her what she desires. And she just shuts it down with, at the moment, peace and quiet. Then that's when Bran comes and she goes, No need to seize the last word, Lord Baelish. I'll assume it was something clever. It was perfect. She's learning how to play him. Hopefully she sticks with that. I just, I don't feel comfortable with her. Well, he's the master and teacher, right? And so is Cersei. So he said it once perfectly. We're all liars here and every one of us better than you. How much does she need to learn before the student surpasses the teacher? Yeah. They're still dangerous and she can't let her guard down for a minute. Let's talk about the other quick scene that took place at the wall. We realize that Walker army that we saw was really all through the vision that Bran was having at the heart tree before they tried to enter through the wall. So the gates open and our good friend Ed, who's now Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, comes out to meet them. He doesn't realize at first who they are, but Bran tells him he knows Ed and is aware of the danger that's coming and Ed takes him in. Well, yeah, what's key is he tells Ed things about himself that he knows from his visions, which I guess... Shows him that he's really a Stark? Well, the Fist of the First Men, Hard Home, if you weren't there, you wouldn't have known about that. We also get a really great visual shot of the wall. Every time we see that, it's just so beautiful. We've kind of talked about already the other stuff going on with Bran and the possibilities. Again, we touched upon this before. We didn't see what we thought we would, which was some kind of magical force kind of dissipate. That's true, but did we really see him go through? We saw the gates open up, we saw them starting to go in, and then that was it, right? Well, at first I was like, oh, I guess our theory was wrong. But then again, when he went into the Three-Eyed Raven's cave, we didn't see something visually happen. We didn't know it till they were there. And it might not be gone, it might just have weakened it, you know? This wall of protection is a lot bigger than the little cave. So just being touched by the White Walker may not be enough to completely dissipate the magic. But I still hang firm on that theory that there is magic protecting that wall and it's at least injured it. Affected it. Yeah, I agree. I think we're going to wait to have to see more on that. So let's go elsewhere in the north for now. 
to where the Hound rides with Beric, Thoros, and the Brotherhood. They decide to shelter for the night in an abandoned house that the Hound doesn't like. There they discover the corpses of the farmer and his daughter Sally, who the Hound had injured months before when he and Arya encountered them. Took me a while because the last time we were at that house, there was no snow. Hmm. It was good weather. Now we see winter is affecting other lands and it's slowly reaching the south. So at first I thought maybe it just reminded him of that home. Me too. But the closer we got, even when they got inside, and when Beric looks at the two dead bodies and theorizes that they were probably starving and the father decided to take his life and his child's instead of starving to death. I think that really hit home for the hound. And that's also when I realized that's the people he stole from. After them helping the hound and Arya shelter and food, he hits the guy, right? Takes their money, the only money they have, and leaves. And remember what he says? They'll never survive the winter anyway. Now here's where I got tripped up because I thought when he hit him, he actually killed him. And so I kept thinking, you know, he was telling Thoros later... I didn't know them, but I know people like them. I know who they are. So I thought it just reminded him strongly. But yeah, makes total sense the way he was standing there staring at their dead bodies. And we're just seeing such a huge turnaround in the Hound. I love this character arc from the time he was brought back from the brink of death or death itself after his fight with Brienne. He went and joined up with that group. He was trying to atone, turn things around. He's feeling a great deal of guilt over the things he's done. And I think that he really wants to believe in and be part of this bigger thing that the Brotherhood is trying to do, but he's also questioning that as well. He tells Beric, you're not a bad man, but there's nothing special about you. So why does the Lord of Light keep bringing you back when better men have been killed? And Beric says he's wondered at this as well, but he doesn't know what the Lord wants from him. I love the hound says, if he's so all-powerful, why doesn't he just tell you what the fuck he wants? It's my fucking luck I wind up with a band of fire worshipers. The hound is speaking for us in this. We always wondered, what's so special about him? Why does he keep being brought back to life? And when the hound asked him this time, I had the time to reflect. And we, of course, learned more since their main storyline a few seasons ago. And I think I spoke about this in our prequel. It's to save or help Jon Snow. Well, we know it's definitely to fight the winter and the others, right? Because every time Melisandre was looking into the flames, she would say, I pray for a glimpse of Azora High, and the Lord shows me only snow. (laughs) And now we get it directly here. When the Hound questions him, Thoros tells him to look into the flames. He'll get it if he does. And he sees a wall of ice, the wall where it meets the sea. We know that's Eastwatch a castle by a mountain that looks like an arrowhead. The dead are marching past, thousands of them. This is when he realizes they aren't lying. They're there for a reason. I guess it just keeps bringing me back to the question, is the Lord of Light good or bad? You're killing me with this. It's like (laughs) ruining my emotions. Because I want to root for the Lord of Light and Sansa and Snow. I want them to combine. I want Jamie to be with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we're going to bring this up often this season. (laughs) But it has to be meaningful. Symbolically, Clegane has reeled his whole life against fire, right? He's seen it as his enemy from day one when the mountain shoved his face into the flame. This is a huge convert for R'hllor to be able to bring him over to their side. Very huge for him to even bring him over to the fire to look into it. (laughs) Agreed. And we see him continue to struggle with his demons later. Thoros hears a sound outside and he finds him burying the dead man and child. Beautiful scene. 
I think you even said, like, we're watching a man dig and it still feels amazing. It was a good couple minutes of watching him dig and it just, the fact that we know the hound, he was a very cold man. We saw something in him, but it was very small. And now it's really coming out. He even tries to give the prayer and he forgot it, of course. Heart-wrenching. It was so touching when Thoros just wordlessly came up and took up his shovel and helped him. Yeah. And when the hound was struggling over the words, I thought for sure Thoros was going to come in with a Lord of Light prayer. But he just lets him go on, and then he speaks from his heart, and he says, I'm sorry you died. You deserved better than this. Which I think is better than reciting a prayer. Mm. Short and sincere. And it kind of also told me, our separate religions don't matter in this moment. Death comes the same for all of us in the end. I think he's starting to feel remorse for all the troubles he's done. Well, we can't put it off any longer. Let's go to King's Landing. Cersei walks across a painted map of Westeros in the courtyard. She tells Jamie it's ours now. We just have to take it. She says she knows Danny is coming and Tyrion is her right-hand man. Also, that it's Jamie's fault. <laughs> she has an armada, but where will they land? I love Jamie was like, I know this map with my eyes closed. Father has taught me well. You know, why do you need it painted largely? It shows where she's at mentally. She's ready to conquer Everything she, all of her weaknesses are gone. Her children, anyone she's loved, they're gone. She's got no weaknesses left. All she has is that cold black heart and her hunger for power. This is also reminding me of book Cersei, where she begins to become obsessed with her enemies, the enemies being all around her. She starts imagining things. She's talking about it here. They have the sand snakes in the south, the Tyrells in the west the Starks in the north, and Danny in the east. And Jamie's sort of saying, we're on the losing team here, sis. What are we supposed to do? He's also more concerned they won't be able to feed their people during the long winter, which she doesn't seem to care about. I'm the queen of the seven kingdoms. Three kingdoms at best. I'm not sure you understand how much danger we're in. I understand we're in a war for survival. I understand whoever loses dies. I mean, he's raising a valid point. Who are they fighting for now to build their empire? Not only are they going to have no people left to rule over if they all die, they have no children, they have no future. She says, we'll build a dynasty for the two of us. And you see him kind of looking at her like, I don't even know if I want it to be the two of us anymore, you crazy bitch. But what he says is, in practicality, then, we still need allies, especially without the support of the phrase, we need someone. And she says she has a plan. By the way, there's so much amazing costuming stuff happening. I have to stop here because this is when it struck me most. I know Santa was wearing something different, but everyone up there typically dresses in black and these furs. We also were seeing Cersei and Jamie both dressed in these black leather outfits that are really high cut. And later on when we go over to Danny, she's wearing black when she always used to wear lighter colors, light blues. Makes sense for her. Her colors are red and black. But to see all three of them dressed similarly, I wonder if they're trying to say these are the main seats of power left. They're always conveying Mm. themes so cleverly through the use of their costuming. I like that. Michelle Clapton, she's back again this season. She's amazing. Doesn't take us long to see what Cersei's plan is. Next, we see the fleet sailing into King's Landing with the black sails of the Kraken. It's Euron Greyjoy. How did he do this? The Kraken. How did they build those thousand ships? I think it's been a long time since last season. A very long time. I guess it must be. I mean, that's insane. 
They look formidable. And Jamie soon learns they're here by Cersei's request, and this is who she meant by their new allies. To his protest that the Greyjoys are just plunderers, she remarks that Euron didn't come to steal things. He came for a queen. So in the throne room, Euron tells Cersei that the Iron Islanders turned on him once he was crowned king, and they joined Danny to come attack her. Jamie points out that Euron isn't a rightful monarch, and he cites the history of the Greyjoy Rebellion, but Euron says it all worked out because going into exile made him the greatest captain of the seas. He knows Cersei doesn't care about the Iron Islands, but the Iron Fleet is the greatest armada, and with it she could own the seas. Here's what's weird, though. She then turns around and shuts down his marriage proposal because he's untrustworthy. Super smart. She's making him do his, her bidding before she even lets him in. Very smart. To prove himself. But can she play around with the only hope she has left at a, as an ally right now? I don't think it's playing around. She's being very strategic. There's no play here. Even if he didn't say he was going to give her a gift which we'll get into in a second, he would have had to do something for her, which gives her the upper hand. If she just said, okay, that automatically puts him right into play. And I think she needs to work this chess piece a little bit. And she also doesn't fully trust him yet at all, actually. I agree with all that, but she doesn't know how much time they have before Cersei attacks. And now what I was saying about controlling the Blackwater Bay, if Euron's already there... It doesn't matter. But if he goes out now with his fleet to go do whatever he says he's going to do, and then Danny blocks the ports, what's going to happen when he tries to come back in to their aid? He's going to have to go head to head with Danny's army. But this is going to be interesting. He says he won't return until he has a priceless gift for her. What do you think that is? Well, there's a lot of things. One thing you had brought up, and we won't talk about it too much because it is a book, spoiler, but there's a certain horn that has powers. That's as far as we'll go with that. Yep. Which would help Cersei tremendously. I think it's got to be that. I disagree. Okay. I think it's the Sand Snakes. I think he's going to go to Dorne and he's going to destroy it. Well, that would help, but that still doesn't get rid of Danny and her whole army, which has got to be the bigger threat over Dorne and the Sand Snakes. Yeah, but he can't just do that on his own. They need to combine forces for that. That's the major goal. He's not going to say, I have a gift. I'll go do the major goal that we need help with. Oh, so you think he's going to get them on his side? No, he's going to destroy them. Take out that piece. Okay. My gift to you. Maybe there's something on that land as well. Now I'm talking out of my ass. That could be the physical gift that he shows her, but he'll be like, I took out the sand snakes. Yeah, because, well, chopping the pieces down one by one makes sense, but it sounded like he was literally bringing something back for her, and that's what made me think of a physical object. Could be a head. <laughs> Well, remember, her and Jamie's daughter was just killed by the Sand Snakes. So that she does have a personal vendetta against them. I kind of think she's over it, though. It's the power she wants. She's, like, past her children, even. This is crazy. What if he's going to go try to capture a dragon, one of Danny's, and bring it back to her? Well, man. But he'd have to go to Dragonstone to get it. And it's not like you can kind of sneak by and grab a dragon. They're not babies anymore. Well, no, unless he has a plan with something else that... Okay. You know. Oh, man. Well, they still said... Oh, you might be right. Because let's go back to where Sansa was with that army. And they had spoken about... I went to King's Landing. And I wanted to see the Sypt of Baelor. And they're going to kill me. The Dragon Pit or something. Oh, I forget... 
dragon something where like dragons would battle. Think of like gladiators. Yeah, I'm not sure, but there's a hall where the Targaryens used to keep the heads of the dragons all kind of lined up. That might that, that hall might that be could under. have been it. Yeah. If with what you're saying, that could be where they chain up the dragon. It wouldn't <sighs> be the first time people have tried to steal a dragon from Danny. That's the reason I bring that up. And the only way to fight a dragon is with another dragon. Yeah, but what are you going to do? Train a dragon? Watch how to train a dragon and be like, all right, now this dragon's on our side. Uh, I'm saying it would be impossible if it wasn't for this rumor that we can't talk anymore about, but perhaps that could come into play. Yeah, so I'm curious. Let's see what happens with there. And uh, Clatchers, you're probably yelling at the speakers. Tell us what your (laughs) thoughts are. What's the gift? Well, we have to get into these crazy theories or we wouldn't be CKC, right? Moving on. Our last location to talk about is the Citadel. In Old Town, we see that shot of the astrolabe in the library where Sam is performing menial tasks while training to be a maester, and that's putting it nicely. Cleaning bedpans, serving dinners, and shelving books. Great scene. First of all, not our last location. Sorry. (laughs) How dare you? Second to last. Oh, boy. (laughs) But let's go back to shit pans. Um, This was perfect because the way they, first of all, I almost thought they were going to go into a beat. Because normally when you see cuts like that, it's like... Bim, 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 oh, like it was a, like that stomp. It was like the worst montage stomp beat ever. Or remember the potato chips? Yes, <laughs> yes. Pop the top. <laughs> what I saw they were, they were doing is the way they were juxtaposing the scenes. One, it showed us that he was in charge of putting stuff into these maesters' mouths and dealing with what comes <laughs> out. Then putting stuff back in. But the way they did the montage and the way the bowls look similar, it looked like he was just putting the shit back into the bowls. Blowing together. Yeah. <laughs> but what was good about this, they were showing you very quickly, A, the passage of time. He's been there. He's learning the ropes. B, he's visiting these areas where he has to feed the maesters and other people, which is eventually where he's going to meet somebody at the end of these scenes. And C, he's seeing when he shelves the books, this restricted section and how the maesters get in there. And that's finally what leads him up to this conversation. Later, when observing the autopsy performed by Archmaester Ebros, he asks if he considered his proposition in light of what he's seen in the North, if he could have access to the restricted section. He argues he was sent here to learn how to defeat the White Walkers. The Archmaester confides that he does believe in them, as there are too many connections to other outside sources, and Sam's obsession must mean he's telling the truth. But he also chides Sam. We are not like the people in the South or the people in the North. We are this world's memories. Without us, men would be little better than dogs, as we are the guardians of knowledge and history. The people have always thought the end was near, but the wall has stood through it all. And every winter that came has ended. So ignorant, especially for a learned guy. That's all his job has been is to educate himself. Just because the end was near many times and it wasn't, doesn't mean that it isn't this time. That's what... that they don't have to do anything about it. And they, even though they have information to help, like, why wouldn't you help? That's what makes me believe he must have more knowledge and there's a reason they're not acting. It's hard to understand unless you realize that this is a different time. Right? There aren't multiple copies of books in libraries that anyone can go check it out and read about this stuff. The real foundation of important knowledge, lots of these books, the only copy is here at this citadel, locked up. So they quite literally own the knowledge. If there are stories of long nights before and what's been done, and they feel like they understand it, and it's their duty to protect the population, 
that's exactly what they're going to do. They're not going to tell Sam or anyone else, and they're not going to do anything about it. Going with your theory. I hate your theory. Well, <laughs> the other alternative to they have advanced superior knowledge and they know things we don't is that the guy's just an effing idiot. Part of the reason I say that also is this book stuff that I can't get too far into, but the maesters at one point used to also study magic. You know all those links that they get on their chain? Each one is made out of a different kind of metal, and it represents a different area of knowledge that they've studied. Yeah, like Cub Scouts. (laughs) (laughs) They used to get one made of Valyrian steel that showed they'd trained in the higher arts, and they knew things about magic. That was a central subplot in the books. We spent a lot of time in Old Town, I'll just say, hearing about glass candles. And that makes me think at least some of the maesters in the Citadel have an inkling about shit that's going down. Well, I love the way Sam approaches the Archmaester. With all due respect, I've seen them with my own eyes, and I know they're real. So he did play it well, and he did do it with a heavy heart. Wink. He was weighing hearts. Hearts being? He was weighing hearts. Get it? Oh, I thought you were alluding to hearts being the Tarly house sword. Okay. No, he was weighing <laughs> hearts. <laughs> okay. But there's two meanings there. Never mind. Keep going. Yeah. And Sam is having none of that, right? Because later that day, he steals the key. All right. You're not going to give it to me. I'm, I'm a badass now. I've stolen a Valyrian sword. I've killed a White Walker. I'm done messing around. I was proud of him. We also get this shot there of a fire burning atop a structure, a tall tower that looks a little bit like a lighthouse in the center of the city. I was wondering if this is a holdover from when the Valyrians established their citadel in Dragonstone. Just so much fire imagery going on, and a lot of white colors in this town. Anyhow, later that night, Sam studies the book he takes, books, several. Gilly finds one called Legends of the Long Night. What's cool is this is a text taken almost verbatim from the chapter The Long Night of A World of Ice and Fire. You know that textbook, if you will. That big book you have. Yeah, that was put out. This chapter details The Long Night and its aftermath across the known world. So if you'll bear with me, I'm just going to give you a little bit about The Long Night in case you don't know. The invasion of Westeros by the First Men and their encroachment into the lands of the Children of the Forest led to a long period of warfare between the two. The first men were the first humans that came over, and naturally the children wanted them gone. They fought for a long time until they realized it wasn't working, and they came to a pact to create a peace. We find out later, though, during this period, a group of children actually captured several humans and experimented on them, creating the first White Walkers, whose purpose was to protect them from the men. But the White Walkers broke free of the children's control and became a threat to anyone living, becoming the most feared creatures in the known world. 8,000 years before the Targaryen conquest, there was a winter known as the Long Night. It descended upon the world and lasted an entire generation. Thousands starved as the crops and fields lay buried under dozens of feet of snow. In the darkness and cold of the Long Night, the White Walkers descended upon Westeros from the lands of always winter. The great conflict it resulted in is known as the War for the Dawn. No one knew why the White Walkers came when they did, but they killed all in their path and sought to bring an end to life and cover the world in an endless winter. Eventually, the First Men and the children rallied to defend themselves. They were able to defeat them and drive the Walkers back into the uttermost north. It was then they constructed the Wall 
as a massive fortification standing 700 feet high, stretching from one side of the continent to the other. We also know from these legends it was infused with powerful magical spells by the children to prevent the walkers from crossing it. It was also at that time they founded the Night's Watch to defend the wall for that sole purpose. Now what's interesting about this, and we won't spend too long on it, I know us and every other podcast out there is talking about Azor Ahai and the prince that was promised. But if you go back to the text, that was only the story that came out of a place called Ashai, their own tale of this darkness and a hero that was supposed to come again. We're hearing a lot about that because it was the followers of R'hllor that claimed it would be Azor Ahai and prophesied his return. So we're hearing of that through the Lord of Light. But every area had their own story about the long night and the darkness and a hero that would come to fight it. So in the Roinar, there were tales of a darkness that made the river Roin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen. The return of the sun came only when a hero convinced Mother Roin's many children to join together and sing a secret song that brought back the day. Sing it. I don't know it. <laughs> In Giti, the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something no one could discover. And the disaster was only averted by the deeds of an unusual woman with a monkey's tail. And we know in the north, during the hardest winters and the long night, it was customary for the oldest and most infirm to claim they were going out hunting, knowing full well they would never return, thus leaving more food for the survivors. So every area experienced this long night and had their own tale about it had a story of someone that would come and save them, which is what leads us to believe this has to be true. So now Sam has studied onto these books of the long night. He's come across that. He finds this map about the dragon glass, but I also think he's going to find some of these tales about the hero, and that's going to become important. Here, though, he remarks that it's interesting that Targaryens used dragon glass back in the day, to decorate their weapons without even knowing what the first men used it for. As he skims, he sees the dagger. Cat's paw. Exactly, the Valyrian steel dagger. And we spoke about this dagger in the prequel episode, last podcast, so if you want to hear more about that, check that out. As well as all the Valyrian steel blades in the kingdom. That's the season seven prepper episode. But then Sam finds the map of Dragonstone and realizes Stannis was telling the truth. There is, in fact, a mountain of dragonglass buried beneath the ground there. And he writes to John to tell him about it. And finally, the next day, while gathering bowls from the citadel cells, a man grabs Sam's arm and asks if the dragon queen has come yet. Okay, Holy shit. That was crazy. That was awesome. Before I even saw the, the arm, I recognized the voice. You did? I recognized the voice, but not of who it was. Okay. It took me too long. And then I saw the arm and I was like, oh yeah. Grayscale. <clears throat> you don't get grayscale from being grabbed though, right? You have to be scratched or bitten. We don't really know. I, I don't think so. I don't think so because he touched Tyrion. Okay. Now these cells, I believe they're for the sick. Remember the archmaester was doing an autopsy. So I think for knowledge, they take in the sick and then they give autopsies after to learn more about what was going on with that particular sickness. I think that's definitely true, but we saw one area of what looked to be old, infirm maesters. Then there was this other area down there with what looked like prison doors. So I wonder if they're sick, but also kind of imprisoned? prisoned in a way. I think they're in prison because they're so sick. Mm. 
you know, they don't have Mercy Hospital. <laughs> it's their quarantine <laughs> yeah. ward. So basically, that's their quarantine. I don't know for sure. This is what I'm surmising. But that goes to show that he was either caught or he gave himself up. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. I don't think he would have turned himself in to spend the rest of his life there because it seemed like when he left Danny, he was saying he was going to find another way to serve her. He couldn't stay with her. He didn't want people to get sick, but he was looking for something to help her cause. So I think he came to the Citadel seeking some kind of knowledge and they just found him out. And I don't think he's been in there too long because he's kind of in the know because he does say, has the Queen of Dragons come yet? The first thought on his mind still is of her. He loves her. That's going to have to lead to a conversation that gets both him and Sam to more knowledge at some point. Yeah, I hope they speak again. And maybe this is what finally unites John and Danny. If Sam starts telling Jorah about the North and the danger of the others, Ah. Jorah starts telling him, well, you know, there's this queen. She's legit. She's got dragons. We know Sam just sent a letter about the dragon glass. She's on Dragonstone where it is. And John says... Jorah sent me. Yes. And then he meets Jorah and tells him, by the way, I have your family house sword. (laughs) Well, I don't think he's getting out. Right? You think Sam will break him out? I don't know. You think he's going to spend the rest of the season in a cell? I don't I don't know if I want to hang out with someone where I'm afraid to give a high five to. (laughs) Well, he'd be a good man to put on the front lines. I mean, can they kill him? (laughs) Once he goes all grayscale? Stone man? Whatever. Okay, while we're talking about it, let's go to the real last location. How could I forget? Dragonstone. The titular location for this episode. Absolutely. Where Danny's fleet arrives as her dragons fly overhead. Looks like they know their home, by the way. They land ashore, and Danny kneels in the sand. She's almost paying homage to her ancestral seat. This place where she was born but has never seen in her life that she remembers feels like there's an energy, a connection back there. They ascend up the stairs where the dragon pillars flank the front doors. So cool. The theme music's playing in the background. Danny enters and pulls down Stannis' banners. Now she's no longer, I think you already said this, she's no longer wearing blue. She's wearing the black. Which is high cut like everyone else. Kind of hot to be wearing Full coverage. (laughs) Question... How come no one's there? How is it completely abandoned? Yeah, you asked me this because it's true. Stannis went off to war and took all of his best men, but what about their families? I mean, when they found out, did they just peace? Where did they go? I really wonder. I'm because this sure. is a good location. Why would they just abandon that? It's kind of a small, isolated island, though. Okay. And they always said the architecture felt strange. I mean, this was a Targaryen place. The rest of the people of Westeros always found it a little off-putting. Maybe they never liked it there. Well, Danny sees the throne room with the jagged slabs of stone, this crazy throne. But as Grey Worm, Masandi, Varys, and Tyrion silently watch on, she walks right past it, which was great. Symbolically, this is not important to her. She didn't even sit in it. She went straight to the war room. I have to say, though, that throne looks way cooler than the Iron Throne. It's badass. Yeah. But what was always my favorite, she finds the room with the carved table of Westeros, with the door open to the sea that we saw Stannis at a bunch of times. You mentioned, though, they never showed, at least not close up, those stone dragons on the wall. Yeah, I don't recall when Stannis was there ever seeing the dragons on the wall. I might be wrong, but I don't recall it. 
They might have just never panned to them. Well, it makes it more intense that it's quiet this whole time. Nobody's saying anything. It's a good five minutes, no one's speaking, right from the boat all the way up. They're speaking with their eyes, body language. Tyrion's not talking. But the power <laughs> structure was clear because the other three were back a little more. Tyrion, Tyrion was, was up front yep. in between Danny and them. And at one point, Grey Worm tries to step forward and Missandei holds him back. Yeah. And it's... They're waiting. They know how important this is. This is what she's worked for her whole life, the place she's tried to get back to. So they're waiting until she's ready. And the moment she sees that table, she turns to them and says, shall we begin? Oh, pumped me up. And that's how they end the episode. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect the way they do that. I love Game of Thrones. I forgot how much I loved it until we started watching it again. <laughs> Talk about those, the maps. So this is really important. Like always, we open up with the map, but now we have the large map being painted for Cersei. Mm-hmm. And we have now the beautiful wood table carving of the map of Westeros. Does John get a map? Why doesn't he have one? Because he's been riding blind this whole time, <laughs> baby. <laughs> John doesn't get much of anything. This doesn't seem very fair. We have talked so much. Let's just go ahead and give our Raven rating for this episode. On a scale of 1 to 10 ravens, Jason, what do you give it? Before you say anything, we've been going a little high and generous on our other shows and the way we rate them. So I just wanted to give you a quick recap. For last season, we had an 8, 9, 6.5, 8 9, 8.58, 6, 9.3, 10. Is that you? Because it sounds like you. I would never give a 6.5 for a Game of Thrones episode. <laughs> Who are you kidding? That was me, but yours were very close to that. If you average them out, I think we came to about the same average for the season, which was probably high eights, low nines. <laughs> okay. But the last two episodes, we were very high on Battle of the Bastards and Winds of Winter. Battle of the Bastards, what did I give? 9.5. Oh boy, okay. So, let's be honest. I'm hyped. I'm so happy it's back. This episode was amazing, even though there was no deaths, which I think at this point I don't want anymore, except for Cersei. <laughs> so I'm going to go 9.4. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to give this 9 because my opening episode 1 from season 6, I gave it an 8. And I remember also really liking that, but knowing there was going to be room to grow. So I like this a lot better than last season's opener. I'm going up a whole point and giving it a 9. For all the reasons we talked about. I think it's a great setup episode, but that's exactly what it is. It's probably not going to be my favorite of the whole season when I look back. However, it accomplished what it needed to, got me really excited about Game of Thrones again. We also have to talk about our MVB. That's Most Valuable Bannerman. And if you've been with us for other shows, you know that we do MV something for everything that we review. For instance, it was MVM, Most Valuable Magician, when we reviewed the show The Magicians. So this one's Most Valuable Bastards? No, <laughs> no, that's a good one, though. Most Valuable Bannerman. So my Bannerman for episode one hails from House Stark. Oh, good. It's going to be different than mine. Arya Stark. I love her. And that opening scene really started the episode for us and really uh, got my Game of Thrones blood flowing. I kind of thought you might say her. I'm going to give it to your boy Samwise. He literally takes shit all episode, <laughs> steals a key against the Citadel, one of the most powerful places in the world, breaks in and takes a book, which you know has to go against his own personal code of honor, and discovers the truth behind Dragonglass. I think only one of many truths he will find this season. Dig it. 
Wrapping it up, we have our up next and then Clatcher's comments. So sneak peek through the heart tree to episode two, which will be entitled Stormborn. Danny receives an unexpected visitor. John faces a revolt. Tyrion plans the conquest of Westeros. I just have to say here, if you're afraid of spoilers, we are now going to talk about the next on segment. But keep in mind that we're guessing at this, so it's not like we know something you don't. (laughs) But if you don't watch those upcoming, you might want to tune out for the next couple of minutes. We see that one of Jon's counsel warns him that a Targaryen can't be trusted. Cersei is telling her assembly of people that the Mad King's daughter will destroy the realm. Yara says they should hit King's Landing now. Arya appears to be having a scary encounter against a wolf, which makes me wonder about that Nymeria reunion. I'm thinking it could be one of the rest of the pack. Right, which we spoke about in the prequel. We think that Arya's wolf, Nymeria, is in charge or the head of a pack of wolves that are doing their own damage. We just haven't seen it on screen. And maybe this wolf is approaching Arya and doesn't know who Arya is. And then her wolf will come in and be like, chill, that's my girl. But And that would set up an epic reunion. She comes in and saves her. And can you imagine the emotion when Arya turns and it's Nymeria? That would be amazing. But that would mean that my prediction, she goes back north, is true. If she's warging, it might be Nymeria who is fighting someone else. Looking at mean. Some, yeah. I could see that going either way. We also see what looks like Alaria kissing Yara. Yes, it was a very quick scene. If you pause it, you'll see it. Now, we saw Alaria. We see her in the war room when Yara is saying now is the time to fight. So we know she's there. Presumably, she's on our side because last season... Yeah, Lady Olena was trying to get them to come join up with Danny. But I don't trust that woman. I almost swore. Uh, I don't trust that woman because, oh, man, she's been so devious in the way she killed Marcella, which was with kissing her, right? So again, I mean, I don't know if this is right, but I'm afraid that she's kissing her to kill her. Oh, yeah. There's no way she's just making out with Ilaria because they just met and she's into her. I don't know. I mean, we saw Yara's strong game with Danny. Yeah, she's a charmer, but Ilaria is also very smart and conniving. I think you're right. I think she's trying to take her down. I don't know why, but... Oh, boy. And then shortly after that, we saw a really quick scene of someone stabbing someone and it looks like it's in a ship yes and we also saw john throw little finger up against a wall which i can't wait i can't wait yeah put little finger in his place i'm tired of that dude get him out and everybody's warning everybody now that targaryens can't be trusted everyone's heard danny's coming and their first line of attack against that is to try to tell the people Oh, it's the Mad King's daughter. That's what Cersei's saying. And whoever it is that's warning John, you you don't want her as an ally. So this is the beginning of that. Nothing you can do. I mean, when you're on top, you can't keep everyone happy. That's always said, right? But he could really make Sansa happy by saying, all right, so I'm going to go down south a little bit. I'm going to get Danny's army on our side. Danny's going to take care of Cersei while half of her army will join us, maybe. I don't know. Uh, north, and we can fight my battle. We can take care of both sides. Sansa, chill out. It's going to be fine. Well, they need the help. They're never going to do this on their own. And he's about to get a raven that she's got dragonglass. There's no way we don't come in communication with her very soon. I hope they fall in love. I don't think that's going to happen. I know everybody's been wanting to see that. But I do think they're going to team up, at least for a period of time. 
what's that saying that the kids are using? Shipping. I hope they ship. Is that what? <laughs> no, you're shipping them. So you're shipping them as a couple. Oh, okay. I just lost cool points. <laughs> and that's it for Through the Heart Tree. I just want to let all the Clatchers know that we have just released Game of Thrones t-shirts. They're really awesome. They are with our CKC sign-off, which is this round's on me, in a Game of Thrones style. And you can choose your banner. You can either go Ice, Stark Banner, and it has this round's on me with the wolf. It looks really badass. Or you can go House Targaryen, which is what Chris ordered, and it has the dragon sigil. And it says this round's on me. It's really cool. It took me a while to make this design and really good quality shirts. Something to note, if you get the unisexed size, they run a little small, so get a size larger than you would. And the women's size are, are normal. So check those out. You have women's and unisex. If you're a Patreon member, we have given you already, just check the Patreon page, 10% off. And we're going a little long. So that's all I'll say about that. Choose your banner. And if you get a shirt, you're going to help us out, help us pay for the bandwidth here. And also send us a picture with you wearing the shirt and we'll put you on the CKC Clatchers page. And then real quick, talk about Patreon. Check out Patreon. We have bonus episodes every month and we have movie review episodes. Check it out. It's worth a try. Man, there's been so much in this episode. I think what we're going to do is we're going to save Clatcher's comments for a day or two from now, and we'll release another one with those comments. Now, we did bring up a lot of Clatcher's comments throughout the episode, but we do have a good handful of others that I think will cultivate a good conversation between us. Yeah, we don't normally do this. And I, I kind of always wondered, some of the podcasts out there do save their feedbacks for a whole new podcast. And it's making sense now. We want to be able to give it the time it deserves and really jump into these theories. Um, so sorry for, for some of those that were included earlier. If this becomes a thing, we will segment them better. But We'd like to take the time to address them, tell you what we think about it, and also give you a little more information about one of them. Thank you so much for listening. We do ask you guys to do us a favor. Because of you, we are ranked number seven in the world for iTunes podcasts, TV, and film. And we want to get higher or at least stay up there. So if you could leave us a rating and review on iTunes, it takes 20 seconds. You can just give us a five-star rating and give us a mini review. Something positive, hopefully. Uh, only has to be a couple of words. You know, we were able to really get the fan support in leaving us some reviews for our other shows. Westworld was a lot of interaction, but Game of Thrones, you know, there's so much competition out there that even as our listeners grew and our downloads grew, we, we still have like, what, 10 reviews up on iTunes? 12, yeah. So, um, you know, also what that means is when you get one negative troller that comes in and gives you a one star, it kind of brings the whole thing down. And for those of you who are liking what you hear and do want to keep coming back, we hope that you'll put yours in there so that will count on the positive side. And it just helps other people find us in the sea of Game of Thrones podcasts. Very important note, we are releasing this on almost all of our channels, but from this point forward, we will be releasing episodes just on our main channel, Coffee Clatch Crew, and on the Game of Thrones. So also with that in mind, if you're listening to us from another channel, the reviews we're asking for are on the Coffee Clash Crew Game of Thrones episode review. Yes, not the main CKC or the other shows, but the Game of Thrones channel in particular. And if you do want your Game of Thrones to keep coming at you regularly, you can go ahead and subscribe to that page. If you want to hear everything CKC related, subscribe to the CKC page. We'll see you in a couple days for Clatcher's comments. Till next time. This round's on me. This round is on me! Shall we begin?